Hello and welcome to the Midweeks with Pastor Rob. This episode is going up on a Friday, which is a bit unusual, but I missed Tuesday and Thursday, so it seemed fitting. We are going to continue on with the turning points of church history, and I will just remind you again, I am profoundly indebted to uh, Mark Knoll and his book of the same name, which I read many years ago and am now going through again. And it's just a book about, um, in his opinion, of course, there's going to be lots of discussion, but in his opinion, what are the main turning points in church history? And I found it really helpful as a way of just covering the almost 2,000 years of history since Jesus rose from the grave and everything that's happened since then. So we are now entering the 1500s, and we're going to be looking at the beginning of Protestantism, the beginning of the Reformation, and doing that by looking at the character of Martin Luther. Martin Luther was a German, and he was raised with the hope and expectation that he would become a lawyer and maybe a city councillor one day and have a prominent an influential position, and he really disappointed his his parents when he decided that he would rather become a monk and enter a monastery and take a vow of poverty, which is usually not the way of gaining influence and status. However, Martin Luther, uh, by by who he was and by uh, how God worked in his life. Um, was one of the most influential people in all of the history of the world. And I'm going to go deeper into that, but that's just the truth about him. He's one of the, rightly one of the most famous people in the history of the world, in the history of the church. And he, he had massive, massive influence all across the world and in human history. So he became a monk, and one of the things that was uh, predominant in Martin Luther's life was that he was deeply grieved by his personal sin and had no idea how um, a holy God could really accept him as a sinner. And his testimony was that he was really bothered by the idea of the righteousness of God. And for him, how he had understood it, it meant God is righteous, therefore he must punish sin. In his holiness, he must do away with sin. And of course, that is true. Now, as he was a monk and really struggling with his faith, and he always kind of battled depression or melancholy, whatever you want to call it, but um, his spiritual director or his abbot, I'm not sure exactly who that was at the monastery, um, counseled him to become a scholar of the Word of God as a way of dealing with his doubts and his um, mental anguish he was in. And so that's exactly what happened. Obviously very bright and studious. He became a um, a scholar, a professor of the Bible, and began to teach it. And in his studies, he um, discovered that in the book of Romans, the righteousness of God doesn't simply mean or exclusively mean that God is righteous and therefore we're in trouble. Because the righteousness of God is now a righteousness that comes by faith in Jesus Christ as a free gift to all who believe. Therefore, it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So who are the righteous? Those are those who are, um, they're righteous by having faith in God. So the righteousness of God is kind of now two-pointed. It is both his holiness as well as 
The righteousness of God is the righteousness that is gifted freely to those who come to Jesus Christ in faith alone and not depending on works. And so this profound discovery for him uh, kind of made him the apostle of justification by faith in church history. And that's the, the truth that we are made right with God. We are declared innocent in his court of law. We are declared good citizens in God's world, not by um, works of the law, not by completing the law of Moses, not by any other law or by human performance, but simply and exclusively through trust in Jesus Christ, and namely in his death and resurrection. So um, that was this profound realization. Now, historically, at the same time, um, there was this thing going on in the church called the sale of indulgences. And I think it was a guy named Tetzel who was doing it. So he arrived in Europe from Rome with the authority from the Pope to forgive people if they would contribute money towards the Pope. And I think it was to building St. Peter's Basilica, but I could be wrong. And so really it was forgiveness for sale. Now, I think they said that's not what was going on, but of course that was. They would say, you can get loved ones out of purgatory faster. You can get them out of purgatory right away. If you will just give towards the church, the Pope has given a, 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 a leniency. He's given the authority for um, these forgivenesses to happen for money. And of course, um, for Luther, who is being so profoundly impacted by justification by faith, this was a real crime. And so he wrote this um, long letter and nailed it to the Wittenberg door. So a, a door, I think it was like a prominent place. And this is what they would do. And people wanted to kind of post things for conversation and ideas. They would just go nail it on a public door and people could go read it. And he nailed these 95 theses to the door. And he did that on October 31st, which is our Halloween um, in the West. But it's also Reformation Day. That's people say Reformation. the Reformation started with those nails going into the door on October 31st of... Uh, I'm not sure exactly what the date is. It's in the 1500s. I think we just cleared the 500-year anniversary of the Reformation, so it could be, you know, 1517 or whatever, whatever it is. Anyhow, I'm not big on dates, and so I'm not going to force myself or anybody else to be big on dates. Anyhow, that um, 95 Theses started a real controversy and a real um, conflict between Martin Luther and the Pope. And they started calling each other names. I think Martin Luther got either excommunicated or his works were banned. They they were supposed to be burned by the church. And... Um, and Martin Luther, of course, was writing very furiously during this time. He's a very prolific author. Um, th- during this one period of his life, he was producing a book every three weeks. So very, very pro- prolific writer, very brilliant. Um, his writing is often very cutting and harsh, not exactly how you'd want your family talking to each other, but there you go. Um, that was, I guess, part of the character requirements needed for the day. And so eventually he was summoned before the Holy Roman Emperor and a representative of the Pope to, with and called to recant, called to recant in his writings what he was teaching. And 
I think they went back and forth for a few days. And eventually what Martin Luther said was, you know, I, I'm captive to my, my conscience as controlled by this word of God. Um, I can't recant on this stuff. I believe it's what the Word of God teaches, and so I, I, it's, it would just be not wise. He says to go against conscience is neither good nor right. And uh, so he wouldn't recant on his teachings of justification by faith or his criticisms of the church. And this was a, a, the big deal, and it was kind of the beginning of um, replacing, not replacing, but placing again the scriptures at the top priority of all Christian theology. Now, from the Catholic perspective, my understanding was that they they would say as well that the scriptures are the source, but they also claimed an authoritative interpretation for the church so that the Pope or the bishops were the ones that decided authoritatively what the scriptures meant. And so the complaint of the representative of the Pope is that Martin Luther was letting loose the force of everybody having their own interpretation, which was just going to fracture um, the church. And I think in some ways that has been what happened. Now, it's not like uh, Martin Luther started church splits. We know that the great schism between the East and the West happened 500 years before this. So it's not like um, he started church splits, but I would say that there is some truth at the fact that you know, everybody with a Bible in their hand with their own interpretation has led to a lot of proliferations of different kinds of churches and church splits and all this stuff. And God is pretty big and he can handle this kind of stuff. Anyhow, Martin Luther went into hiding right away because you don't really defy the Holy Roman Empire who was ruling over the largest landmass of Europe for hundreds of years. So he's hugely influential. And so he was just defied by a monk. And so you could kind of imagine that that the Holy Roman Emperor, Emperor had authority to make Martin Luther disappear um, in a prison or a dungeon somewhere. And so uh, Martin Luther, I think, was kidnapped by some friends and taken somewhere secret where he began doing a lot of works, a lot of writings, and he translated um, an entire... Or he, he translated the Bible into German. And so that German Bible that Luther created was kind of like the King James Version. It was the, the version used for centuries in the church and had a huge influence on the German language in general. Um, and so that's kind of the story of how the Reformation started. Is it was a, a monk in love with the scripture, learning about justification, free grace from God by faith, and standing up to... A, corruption in the papacy, corruption in um, the church. And so that that's the beginning of it. And that impacted Europe so profoundly. Uh, the Protestant Reformation came out of it. Protestant churches started springing up all across Europe. Um, and it caused a major kind of like division between uh, in the Catholic church, and it led to some wars and stuff like that. But um, which seems like things always do. But that, that, that was the turning point, was the life of Martin Luther and what he saw in the scriptures. And, um, you know, I'm living in Southeast Manitoba where there's a lot of Anabaptists. And so they, they're somewhat indebted to the Reformation. Uh, they kind of got their Bible back at that time, but then they had some different theologies as well about, you know, believers' baptism and some other things that distinguished them. And there was, again, conflict um, there's always lots of conflict in the world. But uh, th- that was the starting point of Martin Luther that started the, the Protestant Reformation. And I think right off the bat, Luther 
Um, and all the reformers were really hoping that this would just lead to a reform in the church. They didn't see themselves as schismatic. They didn't see themselves as breaking up the church. They really saw themselves as bringing the church back to the Word of God and purifying her from corruption. But of course, um, the Catholic Church at large did not see it that way. And uh, so anyhow, we will go on from there. There's two more turning point chapters, which are all around this kind of same time period in the 1500s and 1600s, because at the same time that Martin Luther was kind of accidentally spearheading the Reformation, major advances in travel were happening. Um, The new world was being discovered and empires were forming across oceans, as well as the Catholic counter-Reformation happened in response to this, where they they kind of made some decisions about what it meant to be Catholic in contradistinction to the Protestant Reformation that was happening. And so the next two chapters coming up will deal with the same kind of information. Now, I just want to take a second and just recap where we've been. Okay, we've looked at the early days at the end of the apostolic era. The apostles were passing away, and there was this still a major time of persecution. And the creeds came up, the canon was being embraced, as well as bishops were rising as leaders of the church. And we've looked at the Nicene Council and the confirmation that it is true that Jesus is fully God and not a creature, the Council of Chalcedon, and how Jesus could be both God and man, and that council set boundaries for uh, orthodox understandings of of, of uh, the two natures of Christ and the Trinity. It didn't explain it. That's, it is literally unexplainable how God accomplished this. But uh, you can set wise boundaries to keep yourself from saying anything false. We've looked at the monks and the monasteries. And the thing that's interesting to me is that um, this this time period, the 1500s, is kind of the end of that 1,000 years of big influence that the monasteries would have. There were still monks, of course. There were still monasteries. But the influence of the monasteries would decline because of many things that were happening in the world. Um, but it's interesting to me that the the person who brought about kind of the biggest challenge to the monasteries was Martin Luther, who was a monk. And uh, not long after his um, uh, visit with the Holy Roman Emperor, he ended up getting married. So he ended up forsaking his vow of um, chastity, and he got married to an ex-nun and kind of brought marriage back to the ministry, which I personally am very grateful for, and my four children, I'm sure, are also grateful for. But um, this is, to me, it's just, just, I just want to remember that, that where we've been. And it's like Martin Luther, he was a monk. And the Reformation really uh, brought the close to the influence of monasteries around the world because the monasteries would remain predominantly Catholic or Orthodox, but the Protestants embraced the pastorship where um, men of the word could have families. They're kind of expected to have families lots of times and just to be um, regular people and not necessarily set apart in a monastery. And so that was a major change in Christianity. We also talked about Christendom. Um, Remember the year 1800 on Christmas when Charlemagne was crowned the Holy Roman Emperor by a Pope? Um, Martin Luther's Reformation, the, the Protestant Reformation, brought was a major part of the end of Christendom and the divide between the sacred and the secular realms that we kind of deal with, where there was 
Uh, it wasn't necessarily expected for kings to be the head of the church. Now, there's going to be issues coming up in England with that kind of thing, but it was a major breaking point for kind of this life where everything was connected to everything. The, the, the governmental side, the church side, the family life side, everything enmeshed together in this Christendom um, idea of how to do life. And the beginning of the Protestant Reformation um, was beginning to bring that to an end. And it's definitely ended by now. There's no no such thing as Christendom. We're definitely post-Christendom in anywhere where um, Christianity had major, major, major influence. But the expectation is that uh, for most people is that that people would not be publicly Christian if you're a premier or prime minister or president. Um, and so you can see for us, we are definitely, after you know 700 years of Christendom, crack, Martin Luther comes on the scene and things start to break down. And it didn't happen right away, of course, but here we are um, with a major divide between the secular realm and the sacred realm and the church and the state. So anyhow, those are just my thoughts, and uh, we'll be back whenever I finish the next chapter of The Turning Points with um, looking at the new world and how advances in travel really transformed uh, our understanding of the planet and many, many social structures. So uh, be blessed. Hope you're enjoying these. Have a great weekend.